Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. But first, we start with Dr. Brian Day, Camby Surgery Center, his decade-long legal fight for private medicine. This one is going to the B.C. Court of Appeal. And Dr. Brian Day joins me now. Thanks a lot for coming on once again. You're welcome. Okay, Dr. Day... Yeah, go ahead. So it, it's actually been in. It just finished uh, last week at the BC Court of Appeal. So okay. uh, where where are we at? Where are we at right now? They're going to the Supreme Court of Canada, then, right? Well, right now we wait for the decision of the um, Appeal Court of British Columbia, and um, and then um, then it's very likely to go to the Supreme Court of Canada because of the scale of the case. It's it, it's one of the biggest cases in in Canadian history, really. Okay, let's talk about some of the basics of the case. Can you describe to the listeners what it, the, the, the basic argument behind your, your case? Yeah, the, ba- the basic argument is that when a government um, promises health care to its citizens in a timely manner and then also takes a monopoly position with, the, with respect to providing and, and funding that health care and at the same time outlaws your right to do anything as a citizen when the government doesn't deliver on the promise, does it have the right in law to prevent you from obtaining private health insurance, which, um, as I, I think I've said to you in the past, we, we, and I think most, most Canadians don't realize, we are the only country on earth in which there are jurisdictions that make the purchase of private health insurance unlawful. And the second thing is, in 16 years ago, this question was already asked of the um, of of Quebec, and Quebec yeah. um, at the Supreme Court of Canada ruled that the similar legislation in Quebec violated the rights of Quebec citizens. So the question we're asking, um, parallel to that, is should um, should a citizen in BC suffering or dying or even on a wait list have the same protection of their human rights that the Supreme Court of Canada granted to citizens of Quebec. That, that's it in a nutshell. What is the basis of your appeal? You lost at the B.C. Supreme Court after a very lengthy trial. What is the argument for on appeal? So the basic arguments that went to the court on appeal were essentially um, based on errors in law, um, because that's the mainstay of, of, of an argument. And, and then um, significant factual errors. And, um, and that's, you know, that's, th- this situation is not uncommon. Uh, the Quebec case that I just mentioned that went to the Supreme Court of Canada also lost at the lower court level. And I think there is a reluctance sometimes in, in the case of government versus um, citizens, because uh, you know, you, I just want to correct the fact that, or add to the fact that, Camby is not was not the our clinic was not the sole sole um, plaintiff in this case. There were six patients, two of whom no. died uh, um, during the long wait for for a trial, and three of the remaining plaintiffs are children, were children. Uh, they've grown up now, 
but um, but that that is the that is the issue is is um, is is it's not uncommon for lower courts to rule one way and then it is overturned on 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 a, on appeal right. and that's what happened in Quebec. Okay, speaking to Dr. Brian Day, his court case on private medicine at the BC Court of Appeal. Dr. Day, let me play a clip for you here of your opponents, of course, lining up uh, against you, uh, vowing to fight this all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, if necessary, very prominently among them, the public sector healthcare unions. Here is Barb Netterpel, who is the president of the Hospital Employees Union, uh, speaking about your appeal. We have to focus on ensuring that Dr. Day's can be appealed case fails. Dr. Day is appealing something he's already lost because he wants to make more money. And if he's successful, he'll create a two-tier system where access to quality health care is based on a person's ability to pay. That's wrong. Okay, he's wrong. President of the Hospital Employees Union there. Dr. Brian Day, how do you respond to that? Well, of course, it's in their interest to maintain a monopoly. I'd probably putting the sa- be putting the same for, uh, arguments forwards, but but basically, what they're saying is that Canadians should be. Su- you know, the Supreme Court of Canada in the Quebec case said that Canadians, not just Quebecers, were suffering and dying on wait lists. Um, and in in BC, in evidence was the fact that in a single year, one health region um, had there were 308 patients died on the wait list. If you extrapolate that across Canada, that's 18 patients a day dying on the wait list in, in, in Canada, and that's pre-COVID. It's likely quadrupled or uh, since then. I mean, there are studies that showing it may have gone up by seven times, the number of people waiting. So, so and, and then the other thing, of course, is you'll note they always say can be. They don't talk about the six suffering patients that were the majority of the plaintiffs in our case. Now there are only four of them left, sadly. But that's that's a that's what happens when politics gets in into the argument. What we're talking about here is you or your loved one is is in need of a serious treatment. So, <clears throat> and and you're told by your doctor based on government criteria that you should have your surgery urgently and yeah. the evidence at the trial was that 80% of those patients suffering with urgent conditions severe pain permanent functional um, permanent risk and, and the risk of death are waiting more than the maximum time that the government says they should wait this is this Let- is their own the government's own data let me play another. Let me play another clip here for you from one of your opponents, Doctor Day. This is Andy Longhurst, who is a researcher with the BC Health Coalition. Again, talking about your appeal. Proponents of privatization uh, will move us towards an American-style healthcare system, which would open the door for private insurance companies and private clinics and hospitals and doctors to be able to tell somebody whether they can get a particular treatment that they need. Uh, and how much that's going to cost them out of pocket. Okay, this frequently cited argument by your opponents is that you would like to move BC and Canada to a two-tier healthcare system, an American-style healthcare system where people potentially can buy their way to the front of the line. How do you respond to that argument? Well, look, look if you're a hockey, if you're in a hockey league, and um, this is based on government data, we ranked. 10th out of 11 developed countries. Uh, this is the Canadian Institute for Health Information funded by the federal government through the Commonwealth Fund. If you were in a hockey league and came at 10th 
in the league out of 11 teams. And the 11th team um, was, the, in our case, with healthcare, we were 10th. Canada was ranked 10th in access, equity, and so on. Uh, the United States was ranked 11th. Would anyone in the in the in, would anyone want to copy the 11th team? No, we want to look at the top teams, and the top teams are the top leaders in in healthcare um, are countries in social democracies that have much bigger social programs than ours. They their health systems function much better than ours. They offer also prescription drugs and ambulance coverage and dentistry, which ours don't. So you would be looking to try and emulate those. And every single one of those um, has a small but significant component of, of private insurance and private health care in order to, com- to give some competition to the government monopoly. Okay. And that's, so, so I think I can't overstress the fact that we are unique in the world. We are the only country that does this, and certainly no one wants to copy a country that's performing at a lower level than they are. All right, welcome back to the show. My guest is Dr. Brian Day. His decade-long legal fight for private medicine is case now at the B.C. Court of Appeal. Let's go to your phone calls here now. Alex on the line in Delta. Hi. Hi there. How you doing? I'm good. Go ahead. Um, I spent over 10 years in Europe. I spent lots of time in Greece. They had the system, too, where it's government and uh, private. Um, it's really good, the private, it doesn't interfere with the public system. It just gives another option for the people, the public, to go and get help when the system cannot help them. And I'd like to say to the doctor, thank you for trying to knock down the two-tier system in here. Okay, thank you for the call. All right, when you take a look at these other countries, Dr. Brian Day, with the hybrid system, public-private systems, I mean, are there wait lists in those countries? Well, there, there are, but the, the best-performing countries um, way outperform um, Canada's. And, and, you know, how can I, – I don't see how anyone can imagine that countries like Sweden, <coughs> excuse me, and Denmark, uh, Greece or Belgium and Britain and Holland, how these are right-wing countries. They, as I said, the, the public yeah. systems cover um, services that ours don't. I mean, we, we don't cover an ambulance. We don't pay for artificial limbs when you've had an amputation. We don't cover prescription drugs. And, and the reason is that you get what the government decides you, you, you get. And, and, and just to mention those countries is one thing, but there are countries like China and Russia where, and the former Soviet Union where this kind of law, law did not and does not exist. Let's go to Jazz on the line in Kamloops. Hi, Jazz. Yes, hi there. I just wanted to make a couple of comments uh, uh, as people are saying about the two-tier system. Um, it, we have a two-tier system in our education. We have private schools, we have public schools. Both are functioning side by side just fine. Uh, we're at the same time, we're trying to get ICBC to open up so we have more competition, we have a, a, a choice. Why, why, why are we not allowed to have a choice with our health? Thank you. Okay, Jazz, thank you for that call. How, do you, how would you answer that question, Brian Day? Well, obviously, I agree with him. It's the, yeah. it's, as a, you know, again, it's our, our unique status. But when it gets to the point that 18 people a day in Canada are dying on a wait list and the law says you have to stay there. And, and you know, I, I think, yes, um, we have choices elsewhere. But, but I mean, you can, you can buy health insurance for your pets. 
but not for yeah. not for your relatives. The, 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 it, it's actually um, bizarre. And, and, and as you know, we treat a lot of professional athletes at our clinic, even athletes from Europe, but also locally the Canucks and teams like that. What, should these people be put on a one-year wait list when they, when they get hurt? What sense does that make? Um, okay. Kevin, let's go back to the phone lines. Kevin in North Van. Hi, Kevin. Hi, thanks for taking my call. You know, we already have access to a private system in Canada. It's called the United States. If you have enough money and you want access, you you can pay, and that's fine. But why not keep that money in Canada? Okay, Dr. Day, what do you say to that? Well, he's right. 300,000 Canadians travel to the United States every year, and... um, and, and, of course, the other thing we haven't not, talked not about... The, not these days, though, with the border shut down. No, right? no, but before COVID. And, yeah. and the, the other point, of course, is that in, uh, the groups like injured workers at WCB and ICBC, which is under the um, control of the government, and federal employees and, and federal prisoners are all exempt yeah. from these rules. So our, you know, federal prisoners can go and access private health care. And one of the points I make is that we're fighting for the right that Canadians who are not in jail should have the same um, human rights access that prisoners are given in this country. Let's go to Glenn on the line in Coquitlam. Hi, Glenn. Yeah, hi. Uh, okay, uh, quick points um, already mentioned. We already have a two-tier system. If you're uh, a prisoner, workers comp, military, workers' compensation, uh, you're not subjected to the wait lists of the public system. Uh, the other points being mentioned, my choice was uh, to go to the public system, which kind of horrified me when I saw the weights and the quality of what was available. Uh, go to the United States or go private. And uh, I'd sooner spend my money in Canada and support the Canadian okay. economy. Uh, okay. If Dr. Day loses, then we'll have to start going down to the United States. Okay. The next okay. Thing is- Thanks. Thank you, Glenn. I'm going to cut you off there uh, just because we have a minute left. The bottom line here, Dr. Day, as your case goes forward here, uh, a lot of people will point the finger at you and say, look, this is just about money. This is just about uh, doctors wanting to get rich. How do, how do you respond to that, that this is like you know a cash grab? Well, our founding shareholders, some of whom are deceased now, like the late Jack Poole and Milan Illich, our founding shareholders have donated over $200 million to the public health system in this province. There you'll find the buildings named after them, corridors and hospitals named after them, and programs named after them. So that is, is just uh, not the case. Okay. Thank you for coming on today. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about e-scooter mania now. Have you seen these in your community? How could you not see them everywhere now? The electric kick scooter. Okay, so this is the stand-up kick scooter, electrified now. They look like a blast to ride. I would actually like to try one of these, but it is illegal to use an electric kick scooter on a road or highway unless your community is participating in a BC pilot project for these personal vehicles. Now, we see a lot of cities in BC trying out these e-scooters. Now, you got Kelowna, Vernon, uh, North Van, Vancouver, uh, District of North Van, District of West Vancouver. Uh, Richmond now, the latest city, taking a look at this, uh, possibly trying an e-scooter pilot. A pilot project. Let's discuss now with my guest, Lucas Ten- uh, Tanasiak, who is the co-founder of EV Skate Shop in Vancouver. It's Vancouver's first exclusive 
personal electric vehicle store. And I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Lucas, thanks a lot for coming on. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Okay, let's let's talk about these e-scooters, first of all. So a lot of people are familiar with these. They've seen them. I remember when I when I was younger, uh, my, my kids used to play with what they used to call a, a Razor scooter. Mm-hmm. You know, but it was not an electric one. It, these things kind of look like the old Razor scooter, but it's got an electric motor on it, correct? Yeah, Razor is actually it's a brand, and uh, they, they reached Band-Aid status and just became known as the scooter. But they yeah. uh, they're actually making electric scooters now, too. Okay, okay, so how fast can these things go? Well, quite fast. Uh, some yeah. of them can, can reach really high speeds. Of course, those ones aren't legal for, for road use in, in really any jurisdiction, but uh, it, they can range from 10 kilometers an hour upwards to 10 times that if you have a performance model that, uh, that we don't sell. <laughs> okay, what is the current status of these things legally, right? Like, was I, did I have it right there that they're illegal unless you're in a community where they're having the, they're participating in a pilot project, correct? Precisely, yeah. yeah so, and then yeah. even when they are legal, they, they do have certain parameters of performance and top speeds uh, that you have to adhere to as well. So, you'd mentioned the pilot program going in all those different uh, parts of the uh, Vancouver and surrounding areas uh, and as well in Kelowna, but, uh, they had a 24 kilometer an hour top speed for the pilot program in Richmond from what it looks like is actually lowering that down to 20 kilometers. And if you're on a shared pathway with pedestrians, like uh, one of the greenways, it's actually 15 kilometers an hour. So oh, okay. uh, going, going even lower is a proposed speed for the Richmond proposal. Okay. Do they have brakes? They do. Yeah. Pretty powerful brakes. Okay. Is it like a hand brake? Is there a brake on the handle or how do the brakes work? There's a, there's, Different scooters have different braking systems. Some of them use kind of a thumb-powered brake that uses magnetic braking paired with regenerative braking. Some of them have those old-school ones you might remember from your kid's scooters. They're called a scrub brake where you actually stomp on the back and it, it depresses the, the uh, rear fender into the rear wheel. And some of them just have traditional disc brakes like you would have on a, a bike or uh, some vehicles. Okay, are they easy to ride? I would say yes, they're they're quite easy. My kind of line when someone comes in and they're nervous about riding them is, "You'll be a pro by the end of the block." They're <laughs> they're quite intuitive. Uh, once you get going, they're they're very stable and uh, and yeah, especially at uh, comfortable speeds, they're 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 quite intuitive to ride. We've we've had people from all different walks of life uh, come in and and master them quite quickly. Okay, so if you live in a community where they're participating in this pilot project and these e-scooters are legal, where can you where can you ride them? You, you can't ride them on the sidewalk, right? Or can you? You can't, and we at yeah. EVs are strongly admonish people who do. It's uh, it's it's really bad. It's really bad optics, and it's yeah. just it's really unsafe. It's the same as cyclists. It really, anything that's not a person on their feet going on the sidewalk just isn't right, in my opinion. It. It's yeah. really unsafe. There's people coming out of stores. There's elderly walking around. It's just not the place for anything other than foot traffic. Uh, you want to be uh, legally and, and just logically, it makes sense to be uh, where bikes would go. So just really okay. ride as a bike would. So you can ride them in a bike lane? Correct. Yeah, okay. Um, are, they, are they safe? Like, are you, or, or Do you have to wear a helmet? Is that required by law? You do. You have to wear a helmet. Yeah. You have to be 16 years of age. And, and safety, it's, it's, they're, they're certainly safe, uh, just like cars are safe when used safely, right? So you can get into trouble at 20 kilometers an hour even, right, which is a relatively 
slow speed compared to even, you know, on a, on a pedal bike, you can get going a lot quicker than 20 kilometers an hour. If you're going down a hill or if you're pedaling fast, if you have a tailwind or a combination of all those, it's really, it's about using intelligent driving, just like you would if you were driving a car, right? It's uh, right. use, use your brain when you're riding these things, wear a helmet, pay attention, just like you would if you're riding a bike. Don't assume that anyone in a car or any pedestrian sees you and have high levels of caution at all times. And I believe they're very safe. Yes. Okay, I'm speaking to Lucas Tanasiak. He is the co-founder of EV Skate Shop in Vancouver. They sell personal electric vehicles there. Uh, Lucas, we got Richmond considering a pilot project for e-scooters there. We've got several other municipalities in BC that are they're trying these things out. In the city of Kelowna, interestingly enough, there is uh, there are some complaints about the e-scooters. Some of the public officials there are now thinking twice, and maybe is this such a big, great idea to, to allow these things? There are complaints that the e-scooters are not being parked properly. They're being ridden on the sidewalks, uh, people not wearing a helmet, yeah. uh, people getting into accidents and injuring themselves riding e-scooters. Let me play a couple of clips here for you and get your thoughts. This sure. is Kelowna City Councilor Brad Seben uh, talking about the e-scooter program there. Currently, the way it is, I believe there are far more negatives than there are positives, and change is needed rapidly. Okay, that's uh, Brad Seben there, Kelowna City Councilor, saying there's a lot of trouble with these e-scooters. Your thoughts? There's an important differentiation to make between what Kelowna's been doing and what's been happening locally over here in Vancouver and surrounding areas. So. Kelowna did uh, a rental program where they, uh, companies known as, uh, uh, some companies, Lime, Roll, uh, Bird, a couple of these different brands, they brought out rental scooters and pretty much allowed really anyone realistically who has the apps, there's parameters you're supposed to follow, be a certain age, wear a helmet, ride safely, but really anyone who has the app can just log in, ride these scooters, and and treat them as they please and that's yeah. that's a big difference between what's happening there and what's happening over here where this is uh only private purchase that's legal currently in in all these areas over here so i don't want to i don't want to harp too much on this fact but i'm sure you know the sentiment of what rental cars are like right most people that kind of that trope of you treat rental cars never buy a you know rental car if it's off the market they're, they're treated like crap it's, it's very often the same with these rental scooters where people don't treat them like they own them because they don't, they didn't pay for them. And that, uh, that is very often shown in how the scooters are treated. This has happened very often with rental scooters around the world. Um, some markets it's worse than others. Kelowna has, you know, a pretty young demographic and I've a lot of friends from Kelowna. I know how some of them can be (laughs) not to, you know, paint a picture for the entire community by any means. But, uh, one of the other parts of that, uh, city council is that, uh, the report said that one third of all the accidents uh, in the Kelowna area on the scooters for this rental program, the people were inebriated. One third. That's that's a really high number. And uh, I believe the the more tactful approach is is go for private purchase, where people will treat them with a lot more respect and uh, be be much mm. more careful with them because they paid for it with their own dollar. Okay. Okay. It sounds like we got some drunk scooting going on. Yes. There in Kelowna. Let me let me play another clip here. Drink. Yeah, exactly. Let me play a clip for for you from the mayor of Kelowna here, Colin Bazarin here, talking about changes likely coming to this program there. Have a listen. We may even look at limiting areas where these scooters can go. 
uh, or we may actually even consider canceling the program altogether. Okay, so he's saying, well, maybe they'll get, just get rid of them. Do you think maybe they should just get rid of the rental? I, I've seen it in too many cities where the rental program is just, it, it creates more headaches than, than problems it solves. You know, and and this is I don't want to I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, too, because we've got to remember that the reason why these these proposals are being brought forth isn't just for fun scooting around the city. It's a nice it's a nice first and last mile proposal, of course, or option rather. But uh, this is mostly to reach our lofty aspirations as a province and a, and a city locally for greenhouse gas emission reductions, carbon reductions, and, um, you know, ease of mobility throughout the city. So these proposed, uh, these, these scooters are a great option for all those things. It just needs to be done tactfully. The rentals, yeah. they, they can be done intelligently, but there needs to be so many strict constraints. It's, it's, that, it's that damn psychology of if you don't own it, there's just not that same bit of care put into it. And, of course, I'm incentivized to say that because we sell scooters for private use at our store but are you selling a lot of them are these super popular we we thought we had six months worth of stock when we opened up three months ago we sold almost everything we had in stock in about six weeks so we're 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 blowing out of inventory our only problem is that we just don't have enough in stock and we're working as hard as we can to to fix that (laughs) How, how much are they how much they cost they range from $900 up to currently we sell one for $2,200. And that wow. ranges in, in uh, that gives you a lot of different things based on what you're paying. Lucas, thank you for coming on here to talk about it today. Thank you so much for having me, Mike. It's you been bet. an absolute treat. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the origin of the COVID-19 virus. Where did COVID-19 come from? Did it jump from animals to humans, possibly from a bat? That was the widely accepted theory in the early days of the pandemic. But now more suspicions and accusations being pointed at that virology lab in Wuhan, China. Did the virus leak from that lab. And I've got a great guest standing by on that. But first, have a listen to this report now from reporter Mary Bruce at ABC News. This morning, the president asking new questions about the origins of COVID-19 and setting a new deadline in the search for answers. Biden directing the U.S. intelligence community to redouble their efforts and report back within 90 days, saying they've coalesced around two likely scenarios. One, the virus was transmitted through contact with an infected animal. The other, it escaped from a lab in Wuhan, China. Dr. Anthony Fauci yesterday on Capitol Hill asked about the origin of COVID-19. I still believe that the most likely uh, scenario is that this was a natural occurrence, but no one knows that 100 percent for sure. In March, the World Health Organization determined it was unlikely the virus emerged from a lab. But earlier this week, the Wall Street Journal reported three workers in that Chinese lab became sick with flu-like symptoms in November 2019 and had to be hospitalized. One month before China reported its first case of COVID. Okay, that report there from ABC News. Now, as you heard in that report, U.S. President Joe Biden has ordered some new investigations into the origins of COVID-19 and the lab leak theory on the agenda at the recent G7. World leaders at the G7 summit discuss the COVID-19 origins. Fascinating story. Let's dig into it now with my guest, Charles Burton, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute. And I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Hi, Charles. Thanks for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming out. It's interesting to see the G7 now taking a look at the origins of, of COVID-19. Where are we at with this thing now? Like, is China cooperating in any way with any investigations into the origins of the virus? 
No, to be frank yeah. about it, and they didn't before. You know, the the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros, had said that China had been um, cooperating when the WHO team was finally allowed access to Wuhan and the and the Wuhan Institute of Virology. But now um, he's changing his tune a bit and says that you know Chinese did not share critical data that was gathered in the early days of the pandemic. And uh, the WHO feels that there should be further investigation. So, you know, China's not been forthcoming. We haven't, you know, established any zoonotic connection. You know, we don't, there's been a lot of speculation this year, as you pointed out, whether it came from bats or uh, some said that it went from bats to pangolins, which is a kind of animal that uh, would be sold in a market. And so the Wuhan wet market, you know, might have been the site of transmission. Um, with SARS, we knew early on that it came through civet cats, but with this one, we don't have any information about the zoonotic connection, which therefore right. suggests we have to look elsewhere. Right, yeah, I think that's one of the problems here. Like you mentioned that we've seen other viruses traced to jumping from humans from, from animals like SARS, Ebola, HIV. I guess the problem here with um, with COVID is that even though you know, China, I guess, is suggesting that this jump from animals, to, to my knowledge, there's been no conclusive evidence presented of, of a genome of, of a virus that's living in animals right now showing that it, it jumped to humans, right? Like, like if, you know, if this jumped from humans, have they found any evidence that, that the virus is in animals right now? From, and, that's how, and that's how we got it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the Chinese yeah. keep deferring, um, suggesting, oh, it came on the packaging of seafood imported into China into the Wuhan wet market, or it came from American troops from Fort Detrick, Maryland, who had participated in the 2018 fall World Military Games. But, you know, none of those explanations are credible because, you know, where was the early outbreak in Maryland and you know where is the where is the, the the fish processing plant where the workers have got this thing? So, you know, it seems to be it's really about China. Um, it, there seems to be evidence that that there has been more intelligence made available to President Biden and probably transmitted to the leaders of the G7 with regard to this matter. There is a, a Chinese Vice Minister of the Ministry of State Security who is rumored, you know, it's only rumors, to have provided the U.S. government with information about the origins of COVID-19 when he uh, allegedly defected to the United States in February of last year. So, you know, the change in tune on the part of Mr. Biden may be because the Americans have new information, but because of the sensitivity of the intelligence, they're not being forthcoming with people like you and me about right. why they have these suspicions. Right. Do you think there's a chance that there will just simply never be closure or proof of where this virus came from? I mean, presumably, maybe there at one point we'll get solid evidence of of animal transmission or or maybe there will be an intelligence information will be disclosed, tracing it to the to the to the lab. Or maybe there'll be a Wuhan whistleblower who will come forward with with evidence. But that might not happen. Right. Like, is there a chance we'll just we'll just never know? No, I, I hope not. I mean, you know, yeah. uh, I mean, of course, if they find the zoonotic connection, that'll be terrific. But, you know, yeah. it doesn't look that way so long off. And then the question is, if it occurred because of an accident in the lab, which the senior levels of the Chinese Communist Party decided 
for God knows what reason, to cover up instead of just manning up and explaining that something went wrong. There must be an awful lot of people who would have known about it who are currently being um, unable to transmit their their uh, their information, you know, people in the lab, relatives of people in the lab, people who knew the people who became sick and were hospitalized, you know, this kind of thing. So I think eventually the truth is going to come out. But, uh, you know, certainly the Chinese Communist Party clearly does not want the world to know what happened. And I think it probably is because if the Chinese people were aware that their leaders had suppressed this information to, you know, to avoid making the Communist Party look bad, that that would really damage the the basis of stability of that regime. And, right. you know, people would demand that they get new leaders in. And I think all of us would start to demand um, compensation for the 3.8 million lives that have been lost because the Chinese government wasn't forthcoming in the early stages of this virus about what was going on in human-to-human transmission. Okay, we continue to follow it very closely. I find it fascinating. My guest is Charles Burton, Senior Fellow at the Macdonald Laurier Institute. He's an expert on international relations with China. Uh, Charles, let me ask you about another issue that uh, came up at the G7. And that is the fate of the two Michaels, Canadians, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, who, of course, been detained in China, hostage diplomacy there. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau saying at the G7 summit uh, that China is hurting their own interests by continuing to detain the two Michaels. Let me play this clip here for you. This is Trudeau on how he approaches China and whether being tough with China is the answer here in bringing home the two Michaels. Here's Trudeau. If I go out and, you know, shout to the rooftops, you got to send that person home today and then go and yell and insult the person, um, it's actually going to make it harder for them to be able to send them home. Whereas if quietly we're, we make known by the back channels, this person should really come home. And when you send them home, we won't gloat. We won't say, you see, they have a total, you know, Mickey Mouse system of justice, uh, you know, it actually is, you know, it, it's working. We get them home quietly and we don't get any big win. We don't get any big headlines. Mm-hmm. We get a Canadian home. That's something we've actually done a whole bunch over the past four or five years. We've had a number of very strong successes. Okay, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, they're talking about the quiet diplomatic efforts to bring home the two Michaels. Charles Burton, your thoughts on that? What do you think? I, you know, I have never agreed with this quiet diplomacy approach. It seems that, you know, the government keeps suggesting that there is progress in gaining the release of Kovrigan's favor, but, you know, it's uh, it's gradual and we can't tell you what it is. But, you know, the bottom line is those two men have been in Chinese prison hell for about 920 days. So I think it's high time that the government reassessed our approach and this kind of logic that, you know, the only way to get them out is to appease China and and try and appeal to their better nature and tell them, you know, if they're holding Kovrigan's favor, that in, impacts on their international reputation. I think for China, the bottom line is that holding Kovrigan's favor seems to be working for them. The Canadian government has not made a decision on Huawei 5G. When it came down to a, to a parliamentary resolution condemning China's genocide in the Uyghur territories of uh, northwest China, the prime minister and his cabinet all um, abstained from that vote. And and when we have Canadians in um, of Chinese origin, in particular in Canada, who are subject to harassment by agents of the Chinese state, our government suggests there really isn't any issue there and they should just call the police. Well, 
you know, all of these things um, make the Chinese government feel that they're pressuring Canada through the hostage diplomacy and through imposition of tariff barriers against our agricultural commodity exports to China is a policy that works for them. And there may be, of course, a downside in terms of the regime's reputation or willingness of people to travel to China for tourism because they're afraid that they could join Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spavor in a prison. Um, overall, I think China feels that this is a good policy because of our government's weak response to it. Yeah. It seems that we've shown weakness, and it emboldens the Chinese regime to take more advantage of Canada. I really feel for the two Michaels and their families, and I hope that at some point they do come home. Charles Burton, thank you for coming on today with your analysis. Good to speak with you. All right. Welcome back to the show. Well, who says there are no great deals in Vancouver real estate? Let's talk about the what's believed to be the tiniest lot for sale in the city. It is just nine feet wide. Imagine that nine feet wide, 60 feet deep. It's located at 1912 William Street. Let's talk to the realtor who has the listing here, Christian Chiapetta. He is a realtor with Sutton Group West. Christian, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, this is a fascinating uh, listing you got here. Six. Can you describe it for me? Because I, you know, I was taking a look at a picture of this lot, and it's been described as sort of almost like a driveway. Is that is that a fair description? It, it's a very fair description, uh, and and the words you're using, you know, being interesting, intriguing, all that. That's definitely uh, the way I would describe it too. Yeah. Uh, it, by all means, it looks like it could have been a laneway easement or a driveway, though some people at BC Assessment have said there's been a record of this lot uh, being around for for quite some time. We're talking like nearly 100 years. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Okay, 9 feet wide, 60 feet deep. And uh, is there a, a garage built on the on the back end of it or something? No, uh, okay. kind of an illusion of how, how, how shallow the lot is. That actually belongs to the neighboring lot to the rear. Uh, okay. To the yeah, it, it, uh, you know, a very common question with this one. Okay, I know you've got a lot of interest in this in this uh, listing, uh, Christian. What is what was the asking price for this lot? I uh, originally we were at two hundred eighty nine thousand. As you can imagine, uh, kind of hard to price a property like that. Uh, interest was uh, brisk at that number, but the seller actually ended up reducing at two hundred forty nine thousand. Wow. Uh, yeah, you bet. I mean, uh, can, you, can you say value? <laughs> yeah, no, two hundred forty nine thousand. You can't buy anything for that in this city. That's that's no, incredible. As, as I say, there's a, there's a lot of vehicles driving around that are worth a lot more than that in this city. Yeah. Not my <laughs> not my vehicle, not my vehicle to be sure, but a lot of vehicles. Okay, is it still for sale, or have you got a deal here yet? We actually do have an accepted offer on it currently, uh, just pending deposit coming in, so it's looking pretty sunny, we'll say. Okay, so $249,000, you got a lot that is 9 feet wide, 60 feet deep. Are you allowed to build on this small lot? Can you build a, like a teeny tiny house on there? We're very clear with everybody who inquires on it uh, that the city of Vancouver has zero policy regarding this. Uh, I'm told there's like a study going on regarding it. Uh, the outcome of that, I have no idea, but typically, very clearly, I, I let people know that if you ask planning department today, the answer would be no. But certainly, uh, in the mid-2000s, if you asked about a laneway house, the answer would also be no, and uh, we, we see these things change from time to time. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we hear a lot about laneway houses, backyard housing, that kind of thing. We're in a housing crunch in the city, so... Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people, I'm not surprised you had so much interest in the, in this lot at that price. 
So yeah, I, just, to touch, just to touch on numbers, like it yeah. would blow your mind. Like a one-bedroom apartment, uh, say downtown Vancouver, on an app like Realtor.ca, uh, you know, over the same period of time, say almost two months, would get maybe 500 uh, touches online. Where this lot uh, is over 10,000 of that same period. Um, <laughs> the, the, yeah, the the interest is uh, incredibly brisk. And don't get me wrong, a lot of that is price point driven, of course. You yeah. know, uh, a curiosity at 249,000. But the uh, outcry for different forms of housing in the city of Vancouver is is definitely there, and it's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I mean for sure. I mean, if you see a lot available for sale in Vancouver for two hundred and forty nine, of course you're going to click on it. Who wouldn't want to check, yeah, I, check that? Yeah, out? I agree. I, yeah. I, definitely no uh, illusion on my part that uh, just because there's ten thousand clicks, there's ten thousand buyers yeah. for something so unique, right? What What do people say? Like when so when you show this lot, this property, and and people come by and look at it, what what's the typical reaction that people had? The vast majority is excitement, uh, and 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 what can I do, right? Right. Uh, and that's you know from tiny house to a tiny house on wheels. Um, I've, I mean, I had people looking at looking at it as a garden, actually, if you <laughs> believe it or not. A local restaurant was looking at it as uh, it could be a good garden space, uh, which is uh, you know definitely an interesting use. Certainly doesn't help anything for our housing affordability, but you know it's uh, yeah. it's interesting yeah. nonetheless. Um, uh, uh, do you think that uh, I guess for, if someone buys this and you mentioned you've got a, what looks like a solid offer there on it um, if someone buys this property it, are they basically hoping that maybe at some point down the road the city will say yeah okay we're going to let you build a little little teeny tiny house on there I think anybody who buys this is, is going to be the type of person who's going to kind of try and take charge of the situation and work with the city on, on getting something done logically. Uh, by all means, the city of Vancouver has small spaces approved in that there's townhouses all over East Van that have lock-off suites that are uh, 340 square feet, I believe. I mean, by all accounts, the, 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 the plans that the seller of this home had was a bigger property than that, and we're talking about a standalone house. Uh, livability is certainly there, so... Okay, speaking to Christian Christian Chiapetta, he is a realtor with Sutton Group West about the smallest l- vacant lot for sale in the city of Vancouver, two hundred and forty nine thousand. It's kind of um, it's kind of bizarre when you think about a lot that's just nine feet wide, and how why would this even be uh, a, a, a residential lot in the city? And I know some people have tried to research the sort of history of this particular lot. And is there a story going uh, that I was reading about Christian that? Someone had someone lost this thing in a, this lot in a poker game at one point or something. It, it wasn't actually this lot. There was a CBC article, I believe, that yeah. uh, kind of touched on that. And there was a nearby lot where uh, the anecdote goes that there was, there was a bit of a uh, a loss at the gambling table. Uh, that that wasn't the instance, as far as we know, with this lot. There's there's not a lot of information to our knowledge. There's never been a structure on it. Uh, possibly just the result of. Uh, multiple subdivisions over the years, like many, yeah. many years ago when there was maybe one large lot on William Street on the stretch got subdivided and then uh, but over the, over this many years it's kind of lost in the shuffle. Uh, certainly certainly could have fooled me into thinking it was a laneway though. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Do you think it could you could put a house on there? like could you uh, could you conceivably I, build on there? Uh, I certainly think it's I mean, if you look globally, there's many, many examples all over the world of smaller spaces than this with tiny homes on them. And, you know, uh, to look at it as, as an impossibility, I think, is naive. Like, I think I think definitely 
the city of Vancouver sooner or later is going to look at other forms of housing, and, and I think it's a good chance of something getting done here. I mean, there, if you ask anybody who lives in a four to 500 square foot apartment in this city, uh, they would all prefer to have a, a house that size, have a small piece yeah. of land, and the livability would, I, I would argue, be far greater than any of these uh, small apartments, not, not to cast aspersion on those. I've lived in many small apartments myself, so, but, uh, you know, the, the outcry uh, from just the general population seems to me that, you know, the city of Vancouver will have to take it seriously. Okay, Christian, last question for you. I'm sure this listing has been one of the most interesting ones you've had in your career. What's it like out there right now in Vancouver in the, in the market? Is it like a red-hot market out there? Are you getting multiple offers on properties? Like, what's going on out there? So, so uh, as been you know told ad nauseum, the beginning of the year was as hot as they come, breaking records all over the place, uh, trending towards, uh, I hate to say slower, but it's uh, just not as busy. Still, still a seller's yeah. market by all means. Uh, and and things are still moving quite well. But I think, uh, you know, if I was to have a crystal ball, I'd think as restrictions loosen up and people gain some freedoms back, uh, freedom to travel and, and all that, I think attention is just going to maybe maybe be taken off real estate to a certain degree. I mean, that's kind of, again, a crystal ball question. Uh, but uh, currently, definitely still a seller's market. And anytime right. I say the word slow, I have to say slow by Vancouver standards. So still quite yeah. hot. <laughs> Okay, Christian, good luck with the deal. Thanks for coming on today. Oh, thanks for having me on, Mike. Take care.